uh, these are trying times. I I mean, you you can't turn on the news, what I do on the internet, but, you know, it's it's crazy. It's just one level of insanity upon top of another level of insanity. And, of course, we do know that Satan is insane. Uh, These are previews of coming attractions for the seven years reserved for Israel. So we're not, going to be, we're not going to be part of that, but uh, tonight we're just going to uh, spend time dissecting, or I'm sorry, back, uh, back in James 1.12, we spent a lot of time dissecting that verse uh, so that uh, we could understand that James was trying to get across to us that, that this verse is a stepping stone to how we live our life in this world. You know, th- this is the devil's world. It's not the Lord's. It's not what was planned when he gave it to Adam in the garden. Uh, it's about... What think ye of Christ? You know, and that's, this is what you have to be putting in your thinking all the time. Uh, it's about those who love him by abiding in him, is what we learned in John 15. It's about asking yourself if your focus is on this world, which is passing away, or is it on your eternal destiny? Uh, that will be in the presence of him who gave himself for us, that we might be saved to eternal life. So as we look at this study tonight in Psalm 1, I believe we can see uh, what James was recalling of this psalm, Uh, that God preserves and rewards the righteous and will one day remove evil altogether. So, as an introduction, I want to cover these four areas of study tonight, the the what, the who, the why, and the word, which will be Psalm 1. So, as we review these six verses, I want you to see and I want you to think about what the psalmist was revealing to uh, to the reader. Uh, These verses are written for our benefit, should we desire to please the Lord, in the crazy times that we are surviving in. Uh, the what? Psalm 1, this is the first psalm uh, of the book of Psalms. Uh, this first psalm is one of the best known and probably the best loved of the Psalter. Uh, it summarizes the two paths uh, of, of man. It is uh, the, the two paths of life that are open to people. It's the, it's the way of righteousness and there's the way of the wicked. Uh, it also declares that the blessedness of the righteous and the future misery of the wicked. And it also deals with God's character. Uh, it deals with godly living on our behalf, and it deals with the hope of the godly. And these two paths also emphasize two other things, uh, the importance and absolute necessity of Scripture in our lives. Can't live without it. If, if you want to walk in this world, you better have some ammunition in your, in your pocket. Uh, and the second part is that this, this changed, uh, and a changed character, stability, and fruitfulness it promises to those who make Scripture the core of their lives. Uh, this psalm is considered to be a prologue to the collection of the 150 psalms, setting the foundation for the entirety uh, of the Psalter. <coughs> In view of the content of this psalm, it's considered to be a wisdom psalm, a Torah psalm, as well as a teaching psalm designed to give understanding and encouragement to us. All right, who wrote the psalm? You sure? Are you positive? I think David wrote it. But uh, the psalm, uh, like Psalm 2, does not have an author in the prelude to the psalm. I believe it was written by King David. Uh, late in his reign, but there's not the, again, the, there's not the definitive author in the prelude. Uh, Psalm, 1 is, Psalm 1 is also read uh, with Psalm 2. Uh, they go together. You know, Psalm 1 talks about the, the righteous and, Psalm, and, the, and the fact that God is going to deal with evil. And Psalm 2 deals with 
the coming Hamashiach who is going to rule and reign on this earth. But it says uh, in Acts 4, 24 through 26, if you remember the, uh, the, the companions of Peter and John were praising God for, uh, for Peter and John's release after being questioned and threatened by the chief priest and the elders. And these companions, actually, as you read this verse, they acknowledge David as the writer of Psalm 2. They say that he spoke the words. So based on Luke's account, and, and based on the historical fact that Psalm 1 and 2 go together, I'm going to believe from this is that Psalm 2 was spoke by, spoken by David, and, it, and so was Psalm 1. So uh, these psalms were composed... Somewhere between, uh, the, the, the Psalms of David were composed somewhere between 1020 and 975 B.C. And since David died in 970 B.C., uh, this psalm probably would have highlighted God's work on David's behalf during his lifetime. Uh, why was the psalm written? There are a couple of points I want to get across here. First is that David's psalms reflect his faithfulness to Yahweh. Uh, it is reflective on God's provision through all of David's trials and his testings, and boy, did he have a bunch of them. So it may be that the psalm was written, at, as I said, at the end of David's reign, where David is looking back uh, before his death on all that the Lord had done for him as he walked in the Lord, and this is a key word, in obedience, which is where we are to walk, is in obedience to the Lord's commands. And, and he also desired to be used by God. Uh, he was faithful in caring for the little things, such as the sheep of his father's flock. And also, he was given charge to care for the Lord's flocks. And that was being given what we've learned in the New Testament about, about what the Lord says about being given charge over greater things if we are responsible for the lesser things. So even when David sinned, and he failed, and he did, with Bathsheba, poor Uriah, and he conducted a wrongful census. census. Uh, he recognized his sin and he confessed. And he trusted God for deliverance through the circumstances his sin brought about. And the one thing we need to learn is that sin does have consequences. So, uh, what else did David endure? Well, Saul tried to kill him all the time. So that was the first thing. Uh, he, had, he had the battle with Goliath. Uh, there were the many conflicts that he had with the Philistines. There were the conspiracies of his general Joab and the murders of Joab. And there were conspiracies that he had to deal with with Abiathar the priest. So in his backyard, he had problems. He had the loss of his son with Bathsheba. And then, of course, he had the, the, the Absalom's treason and the civil war to deal with. So the consequence of his sin had repercussions. But he trusted the Lord for, to get him through those. David trusted Yahweh for the deliverance. Now, the second revelation of the Psalter is people's attitudes in worship. Uh, in these Psalms, you see David's attitude of worship before the Lord. David feared the Lord. That is, he had great respect for uh, the power of Yahweh and maintained an attitude uh, of believing God would sustain him and defend him. He trusted the Lord, as we said. Uh, his example should be our desire. Our worship should reflect our dependence on God and on his word. Uh, Psalm 28, 6 through 7 is one of David's mantras. It says this, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. 
Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and, when my song, and with my song, I will praise him. And one more thing before we leave this section here. Uh, have you ever wondered why David was considered man after God's own heart? First uh, Samuel uh, fourteen thirteen, Samuel is rebuking Saul because of Saul's disobedience, and he has told him that the, you know God has taken the kingdom from you and given to someone who will obey him. Saul didn't do that, did he? But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has thought for himself a man after God's own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. That's a pretty serious indictment. Uh, so God sent Samuel to Jesse's to anoint the next king over Israel, uh, who would be God's choice and not the people. Remember, we're learning this in 1 Samuel, that the people chose Saul, but that wasn't God's choosing. David was God's choosing. <coughs> And in this work, as the, as the shepherd over his father's sheep, you know, he depended on the Lord. He trusted him uh, in strength to, uh, for the safekeeping of these sheep. He depended on the Lord for carrying out his responsibilities for the sheep, as well as the, those that were, he, he was responsible to his father for. Uh, and he took this, he took caring for the sheep very seriously. He killed the lion and the bear, as he spoke about. Uh, when they came against the flock, and when he confronted Goliath, uh, he made sure Goliath knew about what he had confronted when he was caring for his father's sheep. Because what was Goliath doing? He was cursing God, and he was cursing the Lord's armies. David was going to have nothing to do with that. And this should take you back to Genesis 12.3. And what does it say in Genesis 12.3? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I believe God fulfilled his promise to Goliath. Goliath wasn't using his head, and he lost it. So David's heart was oriented to God's word, when we, uh, which we would have been, uh, which would have been, in this case, uh, his source documents, if you want to call it that, for understanding all that the Lord was doing for Israel would have been the Torah, would have been the Judges, and would have been one more book. Can anybody think of that other book? Three-letter word? Sounds like work? Job, right? Job. So he had an understanding of what, uh, what God's plan for creation was, and he knew the great wonders and the power of the Lord had performed for Israel in the wilderness. Uh, so in these, uh, in these two following Psalms here, for example, you can see David's dependency uh, on God's word. Psalm 119.11, we've heard this, and we should have memorized it. Your word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And in Psalm 119.05, uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So in almost all cases, uh, David consulted the Lord before he acted. Now, obviously, he didn't do it for the census, and, or Bathsheba, or for Uriah, but uh, for the most case, he did uh, for David, it was the battle is the Lord's and not David's. And we need to remember a couple of principles here. The victories and credits always belong to the Lord, not to you and not to me. And you need to ask yourself, do you consult the Lord before you make decisions in your life? Somebody asked me that. I said, you know, not enough. 
So sometimes we need to be careful about patting ourselves on the back because uh, all spiritual accolades belong to the Lord. Isaiah 42, 8 says, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another. So David, a man after God's own heart, uh, and we see this reflected in Luke 6, 45b, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and David's character and all that was in his heart was reflected in his words in these psalms. All right, so let's get into the word. Uh, this psalm is divided into three parts. Uh, there's the way of the righteous. Uh, in verse 1, the psalmist warns the godly reader of the pitfalls of the ungodly. Uh, in verse 2, the psalmist is encouraging the godly reader on how to remain spiritually strong by clinging to the word of God. And in verse 3, uh, the psalmist is extolling the results of the godly man holding fast to the word of God. Uh, in verses 4 through 5, we have the way of the ungodly. Uh, the psalmist remarks on the ungodly and their character, which is, when you read the Hebrew on this, that's pretty sporting. Uh, in verse 5, the psalmist tells us the ungodly will not stand in the day of judgment, and their sin will not even be known in the presence of the righteous. And the way of the Lord uh, is in verse 6. Uh, I guess I should do this right there. In verse 6, the way of the Lord... David reminds us, <coughs> or the psalmist reminds us, the two ways of life. The righteous enjoy eternal life, and the ungodly perishes in eternal judgment. So I want you to think on these things as the psalmist was recalling all that the Lord had done for him. Apply these principles to your life. Be encouraged, because evil is not going to last. It is going to be taken care of. All right, so let's get into the first uh, section. Uh, now i got my slides all messed up here. Okay. All right. The way of the righteous. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So the first part of this verse, blessed is the man. Uh, I will spend a little more time in this verse because I think it's foundational to the, to the next five verses. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, blessed or happy is an exclamatory. It means, uh, oh, the blessedness. Uh, blessed is plural, and in the Hebrew, it literally means uh, the blessings. Uh, it's an intensive plural and is designed to emphasize the, the many blessings or the multiplicity of blessings and happinesses to those who fulfill the requirements uh, marked out in the psalm. Uh, this could be also be read as, oh, how very happy is the one who. And, of course, that would be those who are fulfilling the requirements of the psalm. Uh, it stresses this as a fact, uh, those who fulfill these conditions uh, and the rest of the passage. So in this verse, the Hebrew for blessed is the plural noun, which, which is asherah or asher. Uh, and the root word of asher is the verb asar. Asar means to go forward, to advance, to lead, to make progress, or to set right. Additionally, this root verb uh, is used in the context of proceeding or advancing in a way of understanding. That's what Proverbs 9, 6 is about. You trust in the Lord, he makes your path straight. Your way, that's your way of understanding. You follow him, he will make your path straight. As opposed to what Proverbs 4, 14 says, do not proceed in the way of evil men. Uh, I don't think we have any of those in this country, do we? Okay. Oh yeah, maybe we do. Uh, blessing then comes from growth in the plan of God. 
through fellowship with him and application of his word. So we as believers have a heavenly position and an eternal inheritance secured by the work of Jesus Christ. But our enjoyment of these blessings, our increase in the capacity to appreciate the Lord, and our capacity for happiness is directly proportional to what we learn, to our knowledge, and to our, of course, knowledge is no good without application, which is wisdom. So the, this opening verse is a beatitude. We saw the beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Beatitudes are written to a certain group of people, and in this passage, that group of people are those who obey the actions of the passage. Uh, be careful to understand that this is not about the believer walking in a system of works, okay? The Beatitudes is not about works. It's about obedience. It's about our walk in non-meritorious faith. So, what the godly person does not do. So, this is how we're going to get this verse started out. Uh, the blessed godly man, uh, who walks, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Walk is the Hebrew verb halak, meaning to follow. And the word counsel is the Hebrew noun asa, meaning advice or way of thinking. It refers to a mental attitude, a state of mind, a viewpoint that determines the decisions we make. We've heard, as a man thinketh in his soul, so he is. Uh, the man of blessedness is one who has determined to walk by the whole counsel. Remember Paul said, I have not failed to give you the whole counsel of God. And that's what we need to look for is those who will give us the whole counsel. Because we need to be able to think the word and not live by emotions or experiences or traditions or by popular opinions or by what is, I hate this word, politically correct. Uh, ungodly or wicked in this verse is the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew means to be unstable, immoral, or without godly restraints. We as believers are not even to take the advice of those who are ungodly. The humanity of our Lord never did, so why should we? Uh, he rebuked Peter when Peter challenged him going to the cross. He didn't take Peter's advice. Of course, we knew that Satan was behind Peter at that point, but he still had to rebuke Peter because Peter was listening to the wrong person. So, so the Lord always followed the plan of the Father, and I believe this is, what da is why David consulted Yahweh before he engaged in any actions as king. So we walk by faith because our Lord set the example of how we are to walk. We don't listen to or take advice from ungodly men. They have no fear of God, and they live as though God doesn't exist. I mean, do I repeat myself? Do we see this today? Nobody believes God exists. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, life apart from God is vanity. It is short-lived. It's futile. It's a vapor that disappears. So be careful who you develop close personal relationships with. Is their destiny the same as your destiny? This is important to tell your kids and your grandkids. And if you have great grandkids, you need to tell them. Okay? You need to tell your family members. The second part of this verse talks about the blessed godly man does not stand in the path of sinners. Well, we're all sinners, so what does this mean to us? Uh, it's an imperative. Stand means to stop or to be firm in. Uh, we avoided the counsel of the ungodly, and now we're to be careful where we stand with sinners. Uh, the Hebrew word for sin means to miss the mark. Uh, the mark is the will and the plan of God as revealed in Scripture. Uh, sin is transgression of God's standards. It is whatever misses the will of God for man doctrinally and what misses the mark morally. So... Uh, 
we're all sinners and we all miss the mark. Need to miss it less, obviously. But, uh, but none of us are, are, are perfect in this life, uh, nor will we ever be perfect in this life. Uh, this is why Christ had to go to the cross. Uh, this is why uh, we have his righteousness, because we have believed in his work and not ours. Uh, but sinners here refers to those who deliberately choose a way of life that is a path that is contrary to the plan of God. The man of blessedness chooses to direct his life by God's plan, according to his inspired and inerrant word. So if you find yourself walking in the counsel of the ungodly and you come to a stop in their circle, you're going to be in big trouble. Then you'll be met by those whose life is defined by habitual sin patterns and are confirmed in the way of the wicked. The more involved you get with the habitual sinner, the more they will influence your way of thinking. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Third part of this verse, it says, The godly man does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Uh, we learned about the counsel of the wicked, the path of the sinner, and now there's a seat of the scornful. Uh, I think Peter talked about the scorners in Second Peter for, uh, chapter 3. Uh, we've, uh, we uh, are not to settle down and get comfortable in the world's system. That's not, uh, this is not where we're from. We get, we're going to get through this, but we're not of the world. Uh, because that system, the world system is a system of what? It's a system of atheism. It's a system of haters of God. And again, I keep, this is all what we're seeing today. In the Hebrew, the word scoffers or scorners are those who have an habitual action of deriding, ridiculing, mocking, and actively engaging in putting down the things of God and his word. Their way of life scorns the moral absolutes of scripture and its way of life. Satan is the ruler of this world, and who does he hate the most? The God and creator of this world. The world system is antagonistic towards God. Uh, they hate his word, and they don't even want it in any part of the public system. And you know what else they don't want? They don't want it in your own home. If they figure out a way to shut you down with electronics so that you can't even assemble together even in your own home, that's what's coming this way. And you need to be prepared for it by hiding his word in your heart. Uh, so you cannot live in this world and be of the world and think you are pleasing God. In Matthew 6.24, what did the Lord say? He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And as Joshua spoke, spoke in uh, Joshua 24.15, he was telling the Israelites, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All right, verse 2. That's still up there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his, in his law he meditates day and night. This is what the blessed happy man does. This is where we want to live our lives. God's word is joy and is not a burden. God did not intend his word to be overbearing or controlling uh, and void of love and grace in our lives. Uh, he created us in his image, but he set boundaries whereby we can enjoy the blessings he has prepared for us. 
the one thing he asked of us to do, as David was, was to be obedient to his principles and his doctrines that will guard our souls against the wiles of Satan. Uh, John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, uh, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The blessed man who experiences great blessing is one who develops a deep love for God's word. God's words to Joshua were, uh, were written here in Joshua 1.8, uh, where the Lord says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make sure your way is prosperous, and then you will have good success. You know, we have the entirety of Scripture. It's all there for us. God doesn't have to tell us anything else. All we have to do is learn it, obey it, to live it, that we might enjoy great success in the spiritual life. All right, it says uh, in verse 2, the uh, continuing verse 2, it says, The blessed godly man, uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord, but is a Hebrew conditional uh, particle meaning if, when, or possible. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you desire not to fall into the pitfalls of what we've been talking about in verse 1, then this is what you're going to do. You're going to delight in God's Word. And then you'll be like that tree planted by the rivers of water that we're going to look at in verse 3. Delight is defined as desire or pleasure or inclination, satisfaction. Simply, it's positive volition. Is it, or, or, are you positive? Do you desire to know God's Word? That's just positive volition to it. Uh, when we delight in something, we deeply care about whatever that is. So God desires us to delight in his word. In John 1, 1, we see that the word is Jesus Christ. Uh, in John 15, 9 through 11, it says, As the Father loved me, this is the Lord speaking, I also have loved you, so abide in my love. Uh, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, verse 11 in, in, in John 15, 9 through 11 is the key verse. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full or complete. So this is our delight. Jesus Christ is the word. His word is a joy. And as we walk daily, uh, as we remain in his word, our joy is complete. And this is what we hold fast to. So keeping the law of the Lord is foundational to, as I mentioned, Proverbs 3.6. When we are obedient to his word, we trust him and he makes our path straight. <coughs> we also learn from John that the Lord's commands are not burdensome, as we quoted in, uh, from John, 1 John 5.3. His laws are designed to protect our souls and to keep us upright in the storms of life, uh, just as they protected David in his battles of life, not just on the battlefield, but as we talked about, you know, Saul and the and and, and the issues that he had with uh, with Absalom. Uh, his word is truth, and in that truth, we're, we're we're sanctified, free from the law of sin and death. So we're at liberty to live our lives unto, as unto the Lord. Uh, as you renew the mind daily, as Romans twelve uh, two reminds us, not being conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of your minds. And we renew our minds in that 66 books. Galatians 5.13 reminds us, uh, For you brethren have been called to liberty, not only to use liberty as an opportunity for the, 
and only do not, yeah, I don't want to read it that way. Uh, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our liberty then is to serve each other, to glorify the Lord, and to delight in the word. And in his law, he meditates day and night. His law, uh, this is the object of our delight. The law refers to the word. God's word is in teaching, instruction, direction, and contains the, the authoritative principles that, that guides our lives. He meditates is an imperfect tense. That is, it's a, it's a past action that is uh, of habitual action or repeated. Or, in other words, we're talking about repetition here. Uh, the word for meditate is hagah. Uh, this word means to plan upon or to ponder in pleasure and enjoy or to gather up and feast upon. You're going to like this one, David. You ready? J. Vernon McGee in his volume through the Bible. Uh, I was reading this uh, a couple of months ago or a month or so ago when I was working on this. And he said, Meditate, meditating is like chewing the cud. Everybody know what chewing the cud? You know what chewing the cud means, right? You know, that cow will graze during the day and he'll go late. Well, you do, you do too. So he'll go graze and then lay down in the, in the shade and regurgitate that stuff, you know. Sit underneath that tree and just chew it and chew it. Well, that's what meditate. They're, they're meditating. They're chewing the cud. They are doing it over and over and over again. And that's what we're to do with God's Word, to take it and meditate on it, to remember it, to use it over and over and over again. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And how often do you do it? Uh, this says, the scripture says you do it day and night. Uh, that means all the time, consistently, constantly, regularly. Uh, this means the man of blessedness is occupied with, uh, with God's word on, on, on a regular basis. It's on his mind and it's in his heart at all times. And in every area of, uh, of his life. So you read, you study, you learn, you apply, and then you start over again. You chew the cud. And of course, the mirror of the word keeps us from forgetting uh, who we once were. Uh, and now, and it re reminds us of who we are now in Christ. Uh, so one last point, and I'll move to the next verse. Uh, remember, this is God's word. Second Timothy 3.16 is very emphatic about that. But he used human authors to write his word. Calvin, Arminius, or any other man, religion, or cult who teaches Contrary to God's word is not of God. We are sanctified in truth, God's truth, just as the Lord prayed in John 17, 17. And now we get to uh, verse uh, 3, the last verse in this first grouping. Uh, the blessed godly man, uh, he shall be like a tree planted water uh, that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. We should read this verse a little something like this. The blessed man who enjoys and meditates on God's word shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Very simple. Uh, when we delight in the word, uh, we prosper, we grow like a tree. Now, we can only see that tree from the ground up, but there's a whole lot more to a tree than just what you see. It's what's underneath it. The foundation of the tree is that part, that deep root system that draws up the water and it draws up the nourishment so that the tree uh, thrives and it develops a, a system of life uh, so that it is able to withstand the storms of life. And that's what the scripture does for us. I mean, it helps us to grow and to be stable in life just like a tree does. So we have 
strong above the ground, and the roots are in the word below the ground. <coughs> a tree also pictures the concept of growth over time. Uh, these big trees you have around here, they weren't little buds yesterday and big trees today. It, it takes a while. Uh, it takes time to produce these oaks. Uh, so just like a tree, we need to grow spiritually in the nourishment of God's words. So uh, we should be able to produce fruit that is a benefit to others. Uh, John 15:4, the Lord talks about our, our, our productiveness. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The problem in it is uh, in our Amazon.com society. You know, we want everything now. We want it to happen now. And, and that's it. But that's not the way it works. You know, it, it, it takes, once you come to faith in the Lord, you don't become a mature believer on day two. It just doesn't happen. Uh, true spiritual growth comes from, uh, you know, long-term established relationship with God through a close fellowship and, of course, the study and inculcation of his word. Uh, let's see. What are, and the second part of this verse talks about being planted by the rivers of water. Uh, planted is a Hebrew verb meaning to plant or to be transplanted. Now, if, if, you, if you think about what happened to us when we became, we went from unbelief to belief. When we came to faith, God took us out of the kingdom of darkness. He took us out of Satan's wilderness. He took us out of an unprofitable land, and he transplanted us into you know, a rich, fertile soil available to us. It's kind of like the the parable of the soils, right? Uh, this is where we can grow and flourish and prosper. Again, positive volition if you choose to. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know Scripture is profitable for our growth to maturity. And the best place to grow is what we're doing right now. Hebrews 10.25 reminds us to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhort one another together so much more as you see the day approaching. So the Lord's coming. We need to be here to, to be prepared because we need to be prepared for the rapture. What are you going to be doing when the Lord comes? Are you going to be doing something he's proud of, that you're proud of? Or are you going to be doing something that he's proud of? Think about that. The rivers of water. Uh, this is pretty straightforward in its meaning. Uh, these are waters that bubble up. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and it makes and make it bring forth and bud, and it may give, uh, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. So God's words goes out, and it waters everything. Uh, you're planted in God's garden at faith, and all we have to do is drink in the water. Uh, we meditate on it. We hold fast to it, and we, we can prosper in it. And we can prosper in everything that comes from the mouth of God if, again, by volition, we choose to do so.
that brings forth its fruit in the season. Uh, we're talking about fruit earlier. Uh, bearing fruit does not always happen. You know, to be productive, you, you must be prepared. Good soil tended with the Word of God. And bearing fruit depends on how much we labor at, uh, at our spiritual growth and our willingness to use those spiritual gifts that were given to us in Ephesians 1.3. And it only happens when we're fellowshipping the Holy Spirit and we're positive. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be positive to the Word. We put those two things together. We gather ourselves together. We put ourselves under the authority of a pastor or teacher or under the authority of the Word somewhere. And you learn God's Word. And you build up your soul and you build up each other. Whose leaf shall not wither. Is Linda Prophet here tonight? I don't see her. Linda will tell you that the leaves of her plants indicate the health of the plant. Vibrant leaves tell us that plant that the plant is strong enough to handle Texas weather. And boy, is it ugly out there. I tried to bring some rain up here, and I got a few drops on my windshield, but they didn't last very long. Uh, the believer anchored in the, in the, by the roots in the Word of God, drinking in the living water daily, uh, will reveal healthy growth for others to see regardless of the circumstances uh, of life. And whatever he does shall prosper as we continue this, this verse. If you have physical blessings, thank God. But true prosperity comes from spiritual blessings given to each one of us through Christ, as I mentioned in Ephesians 1.3. The one who is occupied with Christ is stable in the soul, satisfied with whatever God has for him or her to do in his life, and so he does it. Philippians 2.14 reminds us of this. Uh, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Does anybody grumble in here? Okay, I'll raise my hand. Uh, that you may be blameless and innocent, uh, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Uh, you know, with the, uh, when you put on the mind of Christ, you put Christ first in your life, uh, and you have everything. You have everything you need to prosper in God's blessings uh, on your life. Uh, and, and, and again, one last point about our blessings. You know, where did our blessings come from? We talked about Genesis 12, 3 earlier. It says, I will curse those who curse you, and I'll bless those who bless you. What's the last part of that verse? Anybody remember? It says, he's taking, God's speaking to Abraham, and he says, And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That, that's the source of your blessings today. It's what God promised to Abraham is, has been passed on to you right now at 6.50 in the evening on Wednesday. They're yours. They belong to you. Uh, Jeremiah sums up verse 3 in this way. Blessed, uh, uh, Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. All right, so that concludes verses 1 through 3. Let's look at verses 4 through 5, the way of the ungodly. I even remember to move the slide. How about that? Uh, verse 4, it says, The godly are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. So now we're going to transition to the second part of David's song. We saw that in part one, that the, there was, there's the destiny of the godly man, <coughs> that the destiny of the godly man leads to life. He's that strong tree. 
Uh, this part of the psalm is the destiny of the ungodly man. Uh, his way leads to death. Uh, the godly are not so, it says. Uh, in the Hebrew, this is an absolute negation. Not so. Uh, there is no comparison of the ungodly with the righteous. Uh, the wicked are in no way like the righteous in character or in quality of life. Now, they may think they have everything that they need in this life, but it is poorly lacking in substance because there is no God, just like Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. It's a paper. It's, there's nothing there. They're going to disappear one of these days. So we saw earlier in the lesson the definition of the ungodly. Uh, these wicked are, are not just negative to God and his word, but, but they're hostile. You know, have, have we seen that, that, that they, they hate God, they're hostile to him, and they're hostile to his principles, they hate the churches. Anything that has G-O-D or J-E-S-U-S, they are hostile to it. They're, they're also restless in this frantic search for happiness and peace, and they oftentimes it comes at the expense of others. So uh, what they don't like, they make sure that they put that on you uh, to let you know how much they don't like you, as well as your God. Isaiah describes these wicked men in Isaiah 57, 20 through 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We come to the word chaff. Uh, the ungodly are like chaff. Uh, uh, chaff is that which is defective. It's separated from the good grain. It's blown away by the wind. It has no body, it has no substance, it is worthless. Psalm 35, 5, it says, let them be like chaff before the wind. And similarly, Jesus spoke in uh, Matthew 13, 30, he was talking about you know, the, the, the wheat and the tares. He says, let, the, uh, let them both grow together until the harvest, and, that time, uh, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, today the world says God's standards are foolishness. Uh, abortion, homosexuality, murder, what else, transgender. We have welfare, socialism, communism, gender confusion. It, it just doesn't stop. It just keeps going. Man has come back to the pre-flood generation when in Genesis 6-5 God told uh, uh, Noah, he says that every intent of the thoughts of, man, of his, man's heart, was only evil continually. And again, sounds awfully familiar. <clears throat> All right, uh, verse 5, it says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Shall not stand uh, in the Hebrew means to rise up. Uh, the unbeliever will not have the ability to rise up or endure the judgment of God. Uh, unbelievers will face God at the great white throne judgment. Uh, they will not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And their works will not be enough to justify them before God. In the judgment, uh, judgment is a Hebrew noun for a judicial sentence after the case is presented before a judge. Uh, only those clothed in the righteousness of Christ will ever be able to stand in the presence uh, of the throne of God. On, on Sunday, when we close out the service, is June 24. 
And if you, if you listen to the words of that, you're, you're going to hear this. It reminds us that we will be presented one day faultless before God's throne by our Lord and Savior. I tell you what, man, that puts chills down my back. All right, as we continue in the verse, it says, uh, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, sinners is an adjective for sinful men. They're reckoned as offenders, and they're condemned. I mean, that's it. All those without the righteousness of Christ uh, will be excluded from the eternal blessings of God's presence to be enjoyed by all those who stand in relationship to God by faith in Christ. Now, now that, I realize that's kind of an understatement, but... I don't know if we're, we're going to be at the great white throne judgment. But can you imagine if you, in this finite mind that we think there is a friend, there's a relative that's standing before the throne and the Lord says, it's not good enough. You're hereby judged into the lake of fire. Can you imagine standing there and seeing that? If, if, if you could understand that in a finite mind, how hard that would be to watch. So, what does that mean? It means there's no time like the present to make sure that those you know, you have had the opportunity to share your faith with them. Today is the day. And verse 6, this is the, uh, the last verse. I think we're going to get this pretty close to being done on time. Uh, verse 6 is the way of the Lord. And this is the most encouraging verse of the chapter. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Lord knows. Uh, the Hebrew word for Lord is Yahweh. means the Lord. It means the existing one. It means the I am. Uh, know is the Hebrew verb, uh, which means to have a close acquaintance or, or an intimate relationship with. Uh, this verb uh, describes God's protective providential care for those who belong to him. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. This is our confidence, knowing that, that the Lord has set his seal upon us. You, you're not going anywhere. He belongs to you. And his knowledge of us will, will never be forgotten and will never be misplaced. The way of the righteous, uh, way is the Hebrew noun for path. Uh, from the first part of this verse, we understand the Lord knows our paths. He cares for us as a father cares for his children. Uh, and because we have placed our trust in the finished work of Christ, uh, even when we fall away from the straight path, he has a plan for us. He is still there to rescue us in his loving kindness and in his faithfulness. Uh, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy uh, 2.13 that even when we are faithless, he is faithful, he cannot deny his own. And as Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3.22, we hear this frequently, uh, but, this, but it's important to us. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. When we fail, he doesn't consume us. He doesn't destroy us. He says, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then we come to the, the word, the righteous. That's you and that's me. We have the righteousness of Christ. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. When God sees us, he sees the Son. We belong to the Son through faith alone and him alone. We are in the Son's hands and the Son is in the Father's hands. And we are secure in the hands of Jesus. John 10, 28. Very straightforward. We taught this to the kids in Bible, uh, to the little kids in Sunday school this year. Uh, John 10, 28. Uh, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There's, there's no place like home. And finally it says the way of the ungodly shall perish. Uh, the way of the wicked perishes because they have left God out. Uh, in the following verse from Matthew, the Lord is emphasizing uh, what John 14, 6 says, that the only way to the Father is through the Son. So Matthew 7, uh, 13 says, how, how do we get in? How do we get into heaven? So you can enter by two gates. And it says, enter by the narrow gate. Because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there, be, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So the entry to eternal life is straightforward. It's simple. It's a narrow gate. Jesus is the narrow gate. He opened that gate for all who desire to come in. Now, but just remember... It's difficult to enter that gate by your own works. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to enter that gate by your works. That's why it says it's difficult is the way which leads to life. Because you can't get there by your own merit. So how blessed are we, his righteous ones? Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. There, there, there's no greater blessing than what he offers us. So here's a scriptural summary of Psalm 1-6. 2 Peter 2-9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Proverbs 10-28-30, The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. Perish, destruction, not inhabit. You know, the, these, are, these are not good words. They're, they're, they're not healthy. Uh, rejection of Christ and his word means no favorable provision for eternity. And as I said, that, no, favor, no favorable provision, that, that's an understatement. There is no provision. Not favorable, it's all unfavorable. Uh, so only an eternal death and eternal, and, and eternal separation from God awaits. Uh, this should terrify anyone who has a sense of God consciousness. Proverbs 8.36, But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul, and all those who hate me love death. This is finality. You hate God, you love death. There's no turning back from destruction when you say no to God's provision and you take your last breath. There is no golden parachute. There is no, I repeat, there is no purgatory. So as we uh, conclude this, uh, just a couple of things I want to point out here. Uh, you know, are the words of this psalm just words or are they wisdom? Uh, and, and of course they should be wisdom. Uh, they should be the words that you plant in your heart. You need to covet them, and you need to show them to others. 
these verses are essential for us to understand and apply the principles of God's word to what's going on today. Uh, Titus 2.12 reminds us the grace of God instructs us to live righteously and godly now. That's why I was talking about we live righteously and godly now because the rapture is right there. It's ready. Now is the only time that you have to stand among the ungodly and proclaim the glory of the living God because every day we are given is one moment closer to eternity. So my final words of exhortation are these. Where is your walk? The issues we have in our lives only become significant when we let them control our lives. Uh, God desire, God's desire is that we submit to him and, and, and let him provide. Uh, is his grace sufficient? Uh, in the June VBS class, we, we taught that. Uh, we, we emphasized the power and the sufficiency of God uh, as creator, as sovereign ruler, as Emmanuel. Uh, Matthew 19, 26, uh, Jesus says these words, and he looked at them, his disciples, and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Jeremiah 32, 27, this is one of our, our memory verses for the VBS this, this, uh, this last couple months. It says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? Uh, if you have issues in life, you have health, you have finance, relationship, is there, you have to ask yourself, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? If you find it difficult making Christ-centered decisions, are you taking it to prayer? Because there's nothing too difficult for the Lord. If you have trouble, or if you're timid in giving the, the gospel to others, you know, James says, ask for wisdom. There's nothing too difficult for God. So in Paul's last letter, he wrote uh, these words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.18, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. I encourage you to exhort one another. I exert, exhort you to share the good news. And I exhort you to serve and glorify the Lord. He will preserve you. This is a crazy world, but the battle is not ours, it's the Lord's. But there is hope, there is good news. Uh, Psalm 1-6 tells us, again, there are only two paths for man. If you're on the path that is contrary to God, there can be no entry to eternal life. So, those of you listening online, if you've never made that decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a very good time. Uh, you need to know that you're of great value to the Lord. You know, he desires a relationship with you, but sin separates you from him. Uh, that's why God sent his uniquely born son to die on a cross, to shed his blood, to suffer the wrath that we deserved. Uh, and therefore, by the simplicity of faith, uh, you can have eternal life. And, and I also want you to remember this, those of you who are listening. You know, there's no work that you can do to have eternal life. And there's no sin that you can do not to have eternal life. The Lord completed the atoning work. He didn't need your help. When he said to tell us die, it was done. It was a done deal. He shed his blood that we might have access to freedom from the penalty of sin and death so that we might not perish. The Father judged the Son in our place. He suffered the wrath in our place. The Philippian jailer asked the most important question of his life, as well as the unbeliever should ask this very same question. What must I do to be saved? 
The simplest answer is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right where you are listening at home or listening to this audio in the future, you can believe in the atoning substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and you will be saved. If you have questions, you send them into this church. We will answer them for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, uh, we love your word. Uh, it, it's where we live. Uh, it's how we live. It's, it's how we survive uh, in this world that, uh, that does not belong to us. Uh, I, I pray for each and every one uh, of these band of brothers that have assembled tonight. I pray that you would bless them in every, with every spiritual gift that you have already given them and that you would remind them that they are your servants and that your yoke is, is very easy, it's very light. Uh, remind us to live in such a way that we uh, glorify you uh, and that we remember that uh, today is the day and we pray that tomorrow we're with you forever. We ask these things in Christ's name.